My name is Elizabeth Nixon, and I am a senior at UGA, and I will be reading tonight's passage, Ruth chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves, after the reapers. So she came, and she was continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out from pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out 
and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this with his young women, lest in another field you, you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law.
everybody. This is Ben Coppage, campus minister at UGA RUF, and I am glad you're with us. Some of you are joining us tonight at 8 o'clock, Wednesdays at 8, when RUF normally would be meeting in person, and now we meet kind of remotely. And I bet a lot of you are listening someday in time far, far away from when this was recorded, but regardless of when it is, we're glad you're with us. And tonight we're continuing a series we've actually been in since January called Shattered Saviors. There's three things we're going to look at tonight that you should keep your eyes out for as we move ahead. We'll talk about unedited lament, unnoticed provision, and unbalanced favor. Well, I used to be a pretty emotional guy, at least I thought I was. I thought I was emotionally in touch. Um, But over the past seven or eight years, probably since the time I got out of seminary, I've noticed that as life kind of sped up to warp speed and as my responsibilities grew, children and marriage and jobs and pastoral responsibilities, hearing people's burdens day after day, the more emotionally crusty I felt. I don't know. I mean, I'm a dad, so this is a metaphor that's fresh in my mind, but uh, certainly you remember what Plato was like when you left it out in the sun for a day. It was still a little bit pliable and soft, but it was like had that crust on it or kind of like flakiness to it. And that's kind of how I feel emotionally sometimes now. Like it's movable. I'm not a monster, (laughs) but things don't move with the agility that they used to. And I don't feel as emotionally reactive as I used to, which has made the past month for me extra difficult to process. And I think in a healthy way. You know, we've talked a lot about this the past few weeks, but we've all lost a lot. You know, eight years ago, before I felt kind of emotionally crusty or whatever name I would put on it, I I think I would have cried by now or at least maybe groaned a little bit. But now, intellectually, I process it. I think, you know, this really stinks. I hate that we don't get to go do this or don't get to do that. I feel like I really missed out. But then I move on. Like just the, the, the warp speed of life pushes on. I've got something else to do. And so those emotions get buried somewhere inside of me and they're not able to kind of come out and get fully dealt with. And perhaps you've heard it said before that uh, when you bury emotions, you bury them alive. They're unprocessed and unreflected emotions that are buried alive. And guess what? When you bury something alive, it's different when you see it again. It changes. It's changing and morphing. While it's buried, they're like unhealed wounds that are hidden under a Band-Aid. You might not see uh, the infection that's taking place. Now listen, um, I don't think I'm alone in this dynamic. Even if you consider yourself an emotionally engaged person like I used to be, um, I think this applies to you. Naomi was clearly an emotionally engaged person. She was able to name and reflect and identify what was going on inside of her. And she had a pretty pretty quick response emotionally that seemed kind of healthy. But I think she was also crusty in some ways that I'm talking about. When you think about how she was or what she was like when she returned to Bethlehem 10 years after she left Bethlehem 
And this is that first view, the, the last few verses of chapter one that Elizabeth started the passage with. And you look at how they re-entered the city of Bethlehem. There was some crustiness there. She's snappy. She's like, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because God's made me bitter. Ten years of just the crushing weight of grief all around her changed her. Perhaps a little bit on the inside hardened her. And I think what this does to all of us is it, it means that we have a hard time being sad in this country. And that means we don't really know how to deal with loss. We either just push it down, push down that despair and move on never really grieving the death of things that are very worthy of being grieved or we're paralyzed by loss and we don't know how to deal with it, how to figure out how to move forward. So in other words, we either tend to to fall into under lamenting. Maybe that's like stoic suppression for you. You know, it's okay. I know God is sovereign, but you're thinking I shouldn't be this mad. I shouldn't be this upset, this sad but I just need to accept it and move on. Or you feel like you're the only one who hasn't figured out how to move on, but you just need to kind of move on anyway so you don't get left behind. And we edit our lament. We dilute it. We try to process it to the point that it's not ours anymore. It's just generic sadness or disappointment, but it's not our disappointment. It's detached from our experience. It's it's um, I don't know. It's just, it's so theologized. It becomes detached from our experience, our circumstances, that it slowly dies the death of irrelevance. And this leads to people who have a smile on their face, but a broken heart inside. It leads to people who say God is good, but on the inside don't feel that he's good. Okay, so that's the people who might be prone to under-lamenting, but the people who are prone to over-lamenting, perhaps uh, that's more like you. You know, you fall into childish temper tantrums with God. Kind of like that kid we've all seen or been on the cereal aisle, kicking and screaming on the floor because you didn't get Captain Crunch. There's no self-reflection, no self-control, no fighting to remember who God is. Your lament, your sadness is just more like an adolescent ventilation of emotion. You know, maybe it gives you a temporary catharsis. But one thing it never expels from your heart is this root of bitterness that, like I said earlier, gets buried and just continues to grow out of sight. But here's a question for you as we kind of turn back to the passage. Could there be a third way? Could there be a middle ground? A path of life that spares us those two dangers of over-lament and under-lament? Well, here's why I bring this all up as we talk about Ruth 2. I think Naomi is a living picture of that third way. And while she doesn't walk that path perfectly, who of us does? She walks it better than most. How do we see it? Well, we know from last week and this week, we're kind of bridging the gap from chapter one to chapter two. Naomi is not pretending about her situation. That's healthy. That's good, right? She's naming the pain. She's She's putting words to the frustrations and the places that she thinks she's been wronged. I left full and God has returned me empty. I left pleasant. I returned bitter. I'm as good as dead, she says to Orpah and Naomi, er, er, Ruth in the chapter we looked at last week. She's groaning about these gaps that exist between God's promises to her and her circumstances. 
And again, I think this is a picture of healthy, unedited, unsanitized lament. The lament of a gut-punching loss, or in in Naomi's case, a series of gut-punching losses. Death of husband, death of sons. And healthy lament really is complaining to God, running to him with your complaints. And it's wrestling with God about those gaps between his promises and your circumstances. We've talked about this several times in the past few weeks. Now, look, this might unsettle you. When you read through Ruth chapter 1 and 2 on your own, you might be like, man, uh, Naomi, dial it back a little bit. Um, You're not supposed to talk to God like that. I had a, an Italian friend uh, one time in seminary, and um, he, we were joking with each other because I was observing how he t- interacts with his family. And what appeared to me as, a, as an American, these non-confrontational, polite, kind of beat-around-the-bush Americans, what appeared to me to be confrontation and conflict, very animated fights, were to him just in regular conversation. I, I found this in the cultural atlas It says this about Italians' communication style. Italians are typically direct communicators. They tend to be open about their emotions, and they speak clearly about their point. They generally expect similar honesty from their conversation partners. Therefore, avoid ambiguity and indirect speech, and know that Italians may speak in loud voices to make themselves heard over each other. A raised voice, they say, is not necessarily a sign of anger, but can be an expression of excitement or conviction. And you may find that people talk over one another in order to be heard. When you encounter Naomi, Naomi's interactions with God, or when you encounter one out of every three psalms in the Psalter, which is a psalm of lament, when you, when you read about Job's interactions with God, when you read about Paul's dialogue with Jesus and his suffering, you might be tempted to think as an American, oh, this is cringy. This is too candid. This is too forceful. This com- We're not supposed to complain. But friends, I think uh, the way that Italians communicate with each other, just because it's direct and bold and candid and brutally honest and animated and even loud, doesn't mean it's inappropriate, doesn't mean it's bad. Again, a very healthy way of lament is dealing candidly and honestly with God about what is going on in your life. One commentator called it getting in God's face about what's going on. And that process isn't driven by necessarily like bad theology. It's actually, in Naomi's case, driven by good theology. Naomi knows who her God is. She knows that he's good. She knows that he's covenantal, that he's faithful, that he remembers his promises Therefore, she's wondering, then what's going on in this situation? Why all the death? Why does it feel like I'm cursed if I'm yours? And in, even in that, we see in Naomi a picture of us, like nobody, no human apart from Jesus is perfect. So, of course, Naomi isn't perfect. And, of course, her lament isn't perfect, even as she models a better way for us. You do see, as we mentioned last week, some glimmers of places where her heart might be sliding to self-pity or bitterness. But look at this, even though even though that's the case, even though her heart is a mixed bag, even though her lament is a little bit more of a mixed bag than just all good, what is God's response to her lament? 
to her kind of return to Bethlehem. And she says, don't call me Miss Pleasant. I'm Mrs. Bitter now. That's my name because God's dealt bitterly with me. He's raised his hand against me. He's testified against me. What's God's response to that? Well, again, we see throughout chapter one and chapter two, God's response, is it a lecture? Do you see that in the book of Ruth? Does God exhaustively counter-argue every point she makes and correct the record in the moment? Does he use it as a teaching moment? No. What he does is he weeps with her. And he holds Naomi in his arms. And he wipes the tears away. And he walks the long road back towards restoration with her. How do we know that? Because he gives her Ruth. It is through Ruth, just like it is through your friends or parents or pastors, that God expresses his love for you and your suffering. He doesn't shut you down. He doesn't necessarily lecture you in the moment. He doesn't, as a lawyer, cross-examine every single point and correct you in the moment. But oftentimes, he takes it, he listens to it, he hears it. And like that gracious parent that you're home with right now over the break, maybe you've said, maybe you've shot off your mouth. Maybe you've said something that was like 60% true and 40% just kind of mean or, you know, not very informed. And that parent, if they're gracious and mature, they're not going to match your emotion in the moment. And they might not even counter-argue every accusation you made about their rules or whatever. But they're going to think in their head, you know what? When Ben grows up, when Ben gets a few more years under his belt, when he understands this situation from a parent's perspective, he'll understand. And therein will come the lesson. And God often does that with us. In the midst, he hears our complaints and doesn't necessarily jump into teaching mode, but he weeps with us. He holds you. He wipes your tears away. He listens. He absorbs, knowing that one day the lights will come on and you'll understand. So let's get really practical before we move on any further. How can you learn to lament if you're like Ben, me, who has noticed some trouble, some lethargy? lethargy and my emotional response to the real-time events of life? How can you grow to learn to lament, to be honest and vulnerable and authentic before God, especially you guys out there, if you can relate to me? Well, practice perhaps going through this practice every morning or every night, whenever makes sense for you. Ask yourself, where am I most glad? And celebrate with God about the places you're most glad today? Where have I been most sad today? And cry to the Lord or cry with the Lord about that sadness. Where have I been most mad today? And complain to the Lord about it or repent to the Lord about it if it's unplaced anger. And where are you most confused and groan to the Lord about that confusion? So again, Where am I glad, sad, mad, and confused? And take it to the Lord in your finest Italian accent. Remember, we're trying to repent of our Americanness in this regard. 
God can take candor. He loves you. You belong to him and he is yours forever. He invites honesty. He invites unedited lament. And it's actually that unedited lament that almost acts as a banner over the rest of what happens in Naomi and Ruth's life. So let me give you a little mental picture for a second. Imagine that the book of Ruth became a, a Broadway musical one day, and you were there in New York City watching the musical happen on stage. Here's what would happen. Over the stage would be a giant banner from the left side of the stage all the way to the right, hanging above it all. And it would say something along the lines of, call me Mara, call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. And underneath that banner that was always hanging there would be this unrelenting, um, these unrelenting waves of God's mercy and provision and grace and kindness to these two forgotten peasant women who actually haven't been forgotten by God at all. And so the book of Ruth creates Every page you read more deeper, deeper into the story, it creates a greater and greater tension and paradox between what Naomi and Ruth initially think is happening and what is actually happening. And we're supposed to clue into that. The way you perceive your life and what God's doing in it or in the world might be that banner of call me bitter because God's dealing bitterly with me. He's taken from me. I used to be full and now I'm empty. But actually, the action happening on the stage of your day-to-day life is unmitigated provision, care, sustenance, grace, and mercy. And that's our second point, unnoticed provision. I think we can actually relate to this point a lot better now than we could a month ago. Because in this kind of pandemic and quarantine life that we're in the midst of, You and I are finally waking up to modern miracles that have been happening right in front of our faces our whole lives, and we didn't even notice. And I'm talking about the modern miracle of trucks, of trucking. They just show up every day in our cities, and they resupply our grocery stores and our doctor's offices and our pharmacies and everything else. Those trucks... The thousands of trucks that come into our city every day or our our state every day are a faithful but unnoticed provision. And it relies on this intricate mission of resupply that happens right in front of our faces, but oftentimes goes unnoticed. It's an unappreciated miracle that actually sustains your life and put food on your table every day. These little miracles sure don't look that special. In fact, they're pretty grungy, dirty trucks with pretty unkempt truckers oftentimes, not food descending from heaven in the arms of angels. But these trucks make their deliveries right in the mess of ordinary real life with all of the twists and turns, the traffic jams, the gridlock, the blinding rain, the unexpected detours, the closed down roads. But one way or another, those trucks show up and they back up and they unload their supplies. And for another day, a city eats and medicines are given out to keep people alive and a community functions. Naomi and Ruth don't notice the ordinary mercies that God has been raining down on them every day. 
They don't notice it at first. But these mercies keep falling every day, nevertheless. So they're back in the promised land. That's a huge mercy in and of itself. Uh, The barley harvest has begun. Did you remember from chapter one, there had been a famine, a famine. And this famine is over. This judgment on Israel is over. Remember the very first line of the book of Ruth says that this is all going down in the days of the judges. In the days of the judges was, if you remember Trevor's sermon from a few weeks ago, an unmitigated disaster. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And God's judgment, his discipline, his chastisement was coming upon his people. And famine was one of the ways that judgment was manifested to humble his people and bring them back. Well, the famine is over and the fields are ripe for harvest. And there are fields for Naomi and Ruth to go and work in. All of this is blessing, 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 gift, gift, gift. And it's happening under the banner of Naomi's words saying, call me Mrs. Bitter because God has been bitter to me. Now, they begin to clue into this just as you and I, you know, after some good news comes, we begin to wake up a little bit and say, oh, could this be a blessing? But at first, we interpret these things the way perhaps the narrator um, clued us into, or I should say the way Naomi and Ruth interpreted it first. So Ruth goes out. She's she is going to work for Naomi she, out of love, this covenantal love we talked about last week. She is going to fight for Naomi, to put bread on the table for Naomi and her. And so Ruth goes out and the, she, the, the, the narrator says she goes out into some random fields and she doesn't have a plan. She's just going to try to make eye contact with somebody, anybody and say, can I scoop up the leftovers? Some of y'all are from South Georgia or middle Georgia where there's a lot of farming and You know, if you've ever been by a cotton field or something like that, after the harvest, there's still a lot of cotton spread around the ground, right? I mean, where where somebody accidentally dropped a handful or where the machine spit some out on the side. Those were kind of the gleanings. They were the leftovers after the harvest. And God had told his people in Deuteronomy, because I love the poor and the widow and the orphan, you will, you will leave the gleanings in the field, but you'll also, I'm requiring you, you're going to leave 10% of your field unharvested that they might eat. It was kind of a first century food stamp program that required the poor to work and to go out and to harvest their own, but the, the owners of the field had to leave that food for them. So Ruth is saying, I'm going to go out into the fields and I'm going to try to find some of these gleanings, these leftover crumbs after the harvest, and maybe someone will let me in their field to gather these things up. And again, it's coincidental. She says, it just so happened, the narrator says in verse two, it just so happened as luck would have it that she happened to be in the field of a man named Boaz, who we know from a comment the the, uh, narrator makes in in the verse one of chapter two is a really important man and is actually a relative. And not only did she just so happen to be in this field, But she just so happened to catch his eye, and he just so happened to make a comment to his foreman, who is this? And they just so happened to meet, and they just so happened to talk. And and a relationship just so happens to blossom. So many coincidences begin to pile up that Ruth and Naomi start to wonder if something bigger is afoot. Could this be God's hand? Could he be behind all of these coincidences? Could these be 
ordinary mercies like trucks dropping off food in a city day after day? Could it be happening right in front of our face? And we never saw it. Naomi is really cluing in. She says, where did you glean today? Ruth, you went out just thinking that maybe I can get a few, you know, food out of the dumpster behind a restaurant. And you came back with like a catering spread. Where have you been working today? She said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth just kind of ordinarily responds, um, uh, it was a guy named Boaz, his field. And, and, and Ruth says, may the Lord bless him. And the Lord's kindness hasn't forgotten the living or the dead. She's saying people who were as good as dead like me, people who, were, who had been left behind and forgotten. And then Naomi, Naomi drops a bomb on Ruth where the lights really come on with Ruth. Ruth had probably already been clued into this a little bit through Boaz. But, but Naomi says, Ruth, do you know who Boaz is? Do you know who that man was? Of all the fields, of all the people, of all the family members that you just so happened to run into, that was Boaz, my family's kinsman redeemer, which we'll flesh out in a few minutes what that means. But she's saying, of all the people in Bethlehem, who are positioned to actually help us. Boaz is the only one. And you just so happened to bump into him. And now you just so happen to be working in his field. And he just so happened to take you under his wing. Friends, unnoticed provision is provision nonetheless. Just because God does not announce his morning mercies for you with a trumpet, Just because they don't enter into your life every hour under fanfare and fame doesn't mean they're not there and doesn't mean he's not faithful. Naomi and Ruth's lament, their lament, their processing their loss, their talking to God about their complaints actually kept their eyes open for God's promises to come true, kept their hearts receptive for the day that God would restore what they, what they had lost. And so friends, before we push on any further here, I want to ask you every morning, are you listening for that beep, 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 beep of God's mercy backing up to your life with a fresh supply of grace, with heaven's provision for your day? Do you look for the ways that God daily answers your prayer? Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Yeah, it's ordinary. Yeah, it's hidden in plain sight. Yes, it's often behind the scenes. But we can't keep just chalking these things up to coincidence or taking them for granted. And God's provision for us, I should say, isn't generic. It's not one size fits all mercy. It's not that present like from an aunt who doesn't know you that well or a grandparent who gives you those generic like roadside hazard toolkit that you're like, awesome, this will be in my trunk for the next 15 years and I'll never use it. God's gifts to you, his mercy, his grace, his daily bread to you is custom designed for you. I'll never forget this story. I had Libby Groves as my Hebrew professor up in Westminster when I was in seminary. I've told y'all a little bit about Libby because it was her husband, Al, who a few years before I got to seminary was the one who unfortunately had lost his life in a battle with cancer. He's the one who made that comment I often share with y'all that 
Nothing has changed. He made that comment when he heard that his cancer was terminal. Well, Libby is his widow. And uh, I had her for winter Hebrew, which happened during the month of January. It was a brutal month. Uh, It was a semester's worth of Hebrew squeezed into three weeks. From eight in the morning until, you know, the wee hours of the night, all we did is study Hebrew. But Libby got us through it. She was one of the best teachers I've ever had and one of the most godly women I've ever seen. Well, we wanted to give a, as a class a present to Libby at the end of the semester to thank her. And after some emails were exchanged, the class decided to get her a snow shovel. Now, I was a little skeptical of that present of, is that of all the things we could get our Hebrew professor, she's going to remember us with a snow shovel. But that particular January, I mean, it made sense. There'd been multiple blizzards back to back that had just left feet and feet of snow on the ground. And we knew that because Libby lived alone, she was a widow, all of her kids had moved out of the house, that it was probably always up to her to clear out her driveway and to clear off the street so she could get to work. And so I thought, practical gift, this makes sense. So we put a big red bow on this, you know, top of the line snow shovel with all these ergonomic features on it and just looks like it was designed by NASA. And we bring it in at our last day of class and we give it to Libby and we were not prepared for her response at all. She saw the snow shovel in the red bow and immediately began to sob. For three or four minutes, she could not compose herself to talk. And when she finally was able to speak, she said, you have no idea what this means to me. She said, Al's last few months, he was so weak, he couldn't get himself out of bed and back into bed for meals and for his treatments. And so I had to lift him in and out of bed. She said he was a full-grown man. And pretty early on those last few months, I tore something in my shoulder, lifting him out of bed And it's never gotten better. I'm in so much pain whenever I use my arms. And shoveling snow this month has been brutal. Libby lost her composure. Libby cried tears of joy and tears of just knowing how well loved she is by Jesus. And how thoughtful and custom fitted his mercies to her are. This is Jesus looking at his grieving daughter who's just up to her her shoulders in lament. And he's saying, Libby, I know shoveling snow is hard for you. And I know you hurt your shoulder lifting Al out of bed for all those months as he died. And I'm going to provide for you. And so through these punk little seminary students who don't even know you that well and don't know that story, they're going to decide to buy you an ergonomic snow shovel so that your shoulder doesn't have to hurt every time I bring snow to Philadelphia this winter. God's unnoticed provision in Libby's life was now very much noticed. And she wept. I know Naomi must have wept. Uh, Naomi must have wept when Ruth came home with a full bag of barley, of food, of oats. And and they started talking about, how was your day and who did you work for? And she said, Boaz. 
I bet it took minutes and minutes and minutes before Naomi could compose herself to tell Ruth, Naomi is my family's kinsman redeemer. He's our redeemer. Naomi's heart was starting to soften. God was starting to give answers to Naomi's complaints about why are you doing this? How are you good? And this is happening in my life. And now months and months or even years later, Naomi is starting to see this unnoticed provision. She's starting to notice it. And it's softening her heart. God's provision is softening our hearts. Friends, your father's provision for you may go unnoticed or it might be misunderstood, but it is never misdelivered and it is never unthoughtful. It is custom fitted to your needs. The pinnacle of his gift to you is Jesus Christ, the savior of your sins, your friend and your redeemer and your king, the perfect match for your weakness, the provider, the lover, your husband, and all the other gifts that come through Jesus are custom fitted in your life. Unnoticed provision becomes noticed. And when we notice it, we get to this last point, this last thing we see in this passage, unbalanced favor. Unbalanced favor. God's favor and God's grace to you is necessarily unbalanced. It's disproportional. It's slanted. It's costly. It's not balanced. It's not proportional. It's not on level ground. It is, it is bent towards you. This is just throughout the Bible. Jesus says it's, we're not to invite people over for dinner who can't invite us back, who can reciprocate. We're to invite those who can't repay the favor. Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another in giving love and showing honor to each other. You give more than the other person is giving. It's a, God is a lay down your life for the sake of other people. Don't just give them what they give to you, but lay down your life for their sake. If someone needs a jacket, give them your jacket and give them, give them your sweatshirt too, or walk an extra mile too, Jesus says. And in Boaz now, not just in Ruth and Naomi's relationship that we saw last week, but now in Boaz's relationship, in his posture towards these peasant women, we see this unbalanced favor. We see a reflection of Jesus's love for you, for his people in Boaz's treatment of these ladies, how do, of these ladies, how does he treat them before we end? First, he sees them. He sees them. God sees you. Ruth should have been the most invisible lady that Boaz laid eyes on that day. She didn't check any of the boxes of someone who should be recognized, should be noticed, should turn a head. But Boaz notices her. He sees her. He pays attention to her. And he doesn't just pay attention to her and see her, but he moves towards her. He protects her. Now, Ruth is a migrant agricultural worker. She's an immigrant. And uh, during the time of Judges, we already said everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Women, especially poor women, especially poor foreign women, would be the most vulnerable to the roving eyes of evil men who were running rampant in the age of the judges. If you've read that book, you know what I'm talking about. And he doesn't just protect her physically or protect her sexual vulnerabilities by not letting other people take advantage of her and himself not taking advantage of her. 
but he also he elevates her. Ruth was at the very, very, very bottom of the totem pole. Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, uh, kind of, he, he puts, he kind of draws the social ladder and has 16 rungs on it. And, and Ruth is literally the 16th rung, the very bottom rung. She's, she's a woman. She's poor. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a father in the picture anymore. She's from out of town. She's not an Israelite. Every Every disadvantage you could have, Ruth had in spades. And none of that stops Boaz moving towards her. He provides for her in every way. Not just food for the day, but a paycheck and financial stability. He says, come and work in my field and don't go work in another field. Stay in this field. And he sends her home with a bumper crop for the night. And he fights for her dignity and he fights to restore her. And he takes her under the shelter of his wings. And this kindness that Boaz shows to Ruth isn't lost on her. She names it accurately. She calls it what it is. What it is is unbalanced favor to an undeserving person. She says as much. She says that. She says, I've done nothing to deserve this from you, Boaz. Why me? There have been so many off-ramps that you could have taken to avoid this costly love you've shown me. I'm foreign, I'm poor, I'm a peasant, I'm a woman with no husband, no father. I have no power, I have nothing to give you, no influence. You gain nothing by loving me this way, but I gain everything. Why? And the answer is that Boaz is a redeemer. He is, in Hebrew, a goel. And a goel in Hebrew and and that society, what that was, was a redeemer. It was a male member of a family clan who would take another family member under his wing who had fallen on hard times. But not like a, you might have a, a rich uncle or a rich grandparent who takes you under their wing. That's, that's a close approximation. We want to honor that. But Goel went so much further than that. A Goel, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer is someone who would bind himself to you. You would become his. He, he would have full ownership of your situation, your burdens, your debts, your problems, your dangers. He was someone who would become all in. He wasn't just a distant benefactor, but he was more like a husband. We'll see this develop next week as we get further into the story. I want to end with this story, though, to give you a a human picture of what a goel is and how they function in our lives. My sister, Annie, I've talked about her plenty of times before. I was over there in Kenya a few weeks ago as her and her now husband, Josh, were getting married. Well, Kenya is being affected by the pandemic as well, not as intensely as America right now, but it's a very present reality and hospitals are kind of shutting down in preparation to kind of build up their capacity and they're they're keeping certain kinds of people away. Well, my sister uh, works at a a baby home trying to get kids healthy enough and connected to families in the community to be adopted. And they got called the other day about another abandoned baby who was found in a plastic bag, but still alive. The police brought the baby, baby Amara to uh, Annie and their house. And after a couple of days, Amara developed pneumonia and Annie started to call around to all of these different hospitals to find a place for, Amara to go and to be cared for. She needed to be intubated. She needed to have oxygen. And hospital after hospital turned her down and said, we can't, we're getting ready for COVID cases. 
There's no room for that. She seems like a lost cause. We don't think there's anything we can do. She kept fighting. She kept calling. She wouldn't take no for an answer. Finally found a hospital in Nairobi, a three and a half hour drive away. And so Annie and a few other people from the home drive, uh, breaking the curfew, the nationwide curfew, breaking the shutdown orders and drive to Nairobi to get Amara to a hospital. In that moment, I, I could not miss how different oftentimes my hard heart, I, I, I would have been like one of those hospitals. It sounds like she's a lost cause. We'll pray for her, but you know, there's nothing we can do. She's too far gone. Annie fought and fought and fought and fought and wouldn't give up, wouldn't take no for an answer. That's a Goel. That's a Redeemer. You take the other person's risk and it becomes yours. Their danger becomes yours. Their sickness becomes yours. Their problems are all your problems now. Their bills are your bills. Their debts are your debts. You are bound together. There is full ownership in your life and theirs. That's a Redeemer. That's Boaz's growing posture towards Ruth and again towards Naomi. And friends, I want to end simply by asking you this question tonight. Do you see the connection between these stories of human love, of God and God's love for you in Christ? That he doesn't just provide Ruth and Naomi a Redeemer who... who He takes care of them, but he provides you a redeemer, infinitely better, infinitely more agile, infinitely more generous than Boaz, who owns your predicament as his own, who owns your debts, who welcomes you in, who protects you from imminent danger surrounding you, who looks at your weakness and doesn't use it as an excuse to avoid you, but it, but uses it as another reason to show you mercy you don't deserve. One who owns your debts, one who fights for you and heals you and restores you, one who gives you dignity back and sacredness back. And friends, just like Ruth, when her eyes were open to this undeserved love and mercy and generosity from Boaz, when your eyes are open to your Redeemer, who doesn't just love you in these overt ways, but in the unnoticed ways your whole life. When your eyes open to that and your eyes lock on Jesus and you realize his eyes were locked on you all along, you will respond like Ruth who said, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why should you notice me, Jesus? A foreigner, an alien, someone far off from you, someone who should have no business with you, someone who's made a wreck and a mess of their life. All I do to you is bring burden to you and cost to you and damage to you. What do you have to gain by loving me? But you still love me. You still place your favor upon me and you give me grace to put faith in you. What have you to gain while I have everything to gain? Friends, Ruth is a gospel narrative. It's a gospel story about God's covenantal love, your Redeemer's covenantal love for you. And we see it reflected in this distant, shadowy way, and yet still beautiful, in the love that Boaz shows to Ruth, and the love that Ruth shows to Naomi, and the love that Naomi shows to Ruth. Next week, we pick up this story, and we continue to see it unfolded before our eyes.